Here we go. Hey, this is Kat Stancic, the lead boss with the Revenue Accelerator podcast. And today we have Stephen Hoffman, aka Steve, aka Captain Hoff, who's going to have to give us a little bit of backstory about how he was crowned with that amazing title because not everyone gets to have a cool nickname, right? I think there's a Seinfeld episode around that, T-Bone or something. So anyway, <laughs> I always like to start these off with a unique angle. Um, so Steve is uh, the captain and CEO of Founders Space. Now, this is something different. We haven't had someone of his caliber, if you will, from uh, on the podcast yet. And it's one of the leading world, the world's leading startup accelerators. So we're going to hear a little bit more about that. And it was ranked number one uh, in terms of incubator for overseas startups by none other than Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine. You might've heard of them. Um, he is also a venture investor, serial entrepreneur, and author of several award-winning books, one in which we are particularly going to speak of and talk about today. Um, those books include Mike, Make Elephants Fly, published by Hatchet, Surviving Startups, uh, published by HarperCollins, and The Five Forces, as well as his new book called Surviving a Startup. Um, he was the founder and chairman of the Producers Guild in Silicon Valley chapter, served on the board of governors of the New Media Council, and was, found, was a founding member of the Academy of Television's Interactive Media Group. He has an extensive background in the TV space, and I actually want to ask him very specifically about this concept of interactive TV and how that parlays into his business and his current success. So anything that I missed there, Steve, or that you'd like to add? Well, there's plenty more I could add, but I won't. <laughs> We can dive right into it. Yes. So, you know, like, how did you get started in this whole entrepreneurial world? Because you, I believe, come from a corporate background and kind of just forged your way and really made a name for yourself in this space. Yeah, I did. So actually, you know, I graduated in electrical engineer. I was working for a little while at GM, but I wanted to explore my creative side. So I went to Hollywood. I went, got my master's degree in film and television from USC graduated, worked my way up the ladder in Hollywood, became a television development executive. Mm. And then I saw the future. So I basically, <laughs> I, I was always into games. And you asked about my nickname, Captain Hoff. It's mm -hmm. my gamer handle, actually, that okay. became my nickname. But I was working in Hollywood and I saw, in, it was in the 90s, and I saw that games were becoming big. They were just beginning to become big. Mm. And I thought this is going to eclipse the film and television business. It's yeah. going to be bigger. So I was introduced to the founder of a game company called Sega, mm. which, mm. At, mm. At the, <laughs> which at the time had just surpassed Nintendo to become the number yep. one video game company. And then, you know, we hit it off. He said, I want to bring somebody from Hollywood into our Japanese headquarters to come up with new ideas. Mm. So I went to Japan, did that, for a year, but then I got the itch. I said, I could do this myself. I wanna start my own game company. So I became an entrepreneur. I moved back to my home, which was Silicon Valley, launched my first company, Lava Mind, a game company, did really well with some crazy games, like Gazillionaire being one, where you become a gazillionaire. And I went on to launch three venture funded startups. And then after my third startup, I was taking a break and all my friends started to come to me and say, Captain Hoff, help me with my business plan. How do I launch a company? What do I do? Mm. How do I talk to investors? You know, all the questions entrepreneurs had. I started helping them. More and more entrepreneurs started to come. And I decided we'll get a space in San Francisco, call it Founders Space. Mm. 
-hmm. And it became our startup incubator and accelerator. And then since then, we've expanded. We now have over 50 partners in 22 countries. I work with hundreds of entrepreneurs, really going deep with them on their businesses. And I hope I can share some of that knowledge today. Oh, that's great. You know, so I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs who start off with bootstrapping, right? We, we start off in that space and the entrepreneurial venture funded space. Now I've gone through that in terms of my corporate experience and gone through VC funding and angel funding and, you know, had to do all the due diligence and, oh my God, <laughs> all this stuff. Um, but, you know, it's not something that I see happen very often in terms of smaller, not necessarily tech, you know, that this was in the tech space. It's pretty common in the tech space. But in, let's say, like the business strategy, coaching, consulting, I'm not, I don't see VC funding and investing happening, happening as often, or at least as overt as it is in that space. So, you know, is VC funding specific really for only certain industries, or is it really just anyone who has the dream can kind of potentially acquire it? It is not for anybody who has the dream. Having the dream is not enough. <laughs> Venture capital has very strict requirements, actually. Mm-hmm. So for the small to medium-sized businesses, for businesses even that can become very large but are linear growth, mm-hmm. venture capital is out. Like mm. if you're if you run a venture fund, and I venture invest now, and I work with venture investors all over the world, when we look for startups to put our money in, we need to get our money out within a reasonable amount of time. That means we need that company to be acquired or we need it to go public. Yep. So unless it's on the path to doing that, literally within seven to 10 years, most of the time we won't invest because the life of a fund is usually 10 years, maybe 12 years, but the investments happen in the first three years. And then you're just waiting. If those things do not, if there's no exit, meaning no return on investment, then we have to sell those shares at a discount just Mm -hmm. to pay back our investors in our fund. So that's why venture capital looks for exponential growth. So if you don't have a business, that can scale massively and become one of these unicorns that everybody right. is talking about, venture capitalists literally won't take a bet on you. They, yeah. Even if you tell them you can get good, steady returns year after mm-hmm. year, it's mm-hmm. not enough. That's an SBA loan. That's not a VC funded. Exactly. <laughs> um, kind of thing. So what should people be looking for in terms of creating that exponential growth? Because, you know, there is nothing wrong with having a boutique company where you're doing high ticket sales and it's high touch and all this other stuff. And it is a more of a lifestyle kind of business. Um, but what should people be thinking of when it comes to, you know, positioning themselves for this exponential growth? Like the thinking is different and the positioning is different. So what are those things that people should be taking into consideration? The first thing you need to consider is that don't do it yourself. We call these solopreneurs. Yes. <laughs> Nobody built a billion dollar business alone. Like even Elon Musk, he's not right. alone. He has other <laughs> people working for him, although you may not know it because he does all the talking. <laughs> Well, someone has to be the pretty face. Yes. So he takes all the credit, but he has a lot of hardworking people behind him doing all those crazy things. What, uh, so you have, the most important thing I tell entrepreneurs, if you want to set yourself up for doing a a bigger company, first thing, spend 80% of your time finding the right people to bring on. Mm. And most likely, but not always, you're going to have to use some form of technology development. You're going to have to develop and innovate on some sort of technology that will actually give you a competitive edge. Because if you're doing your business the same as everybody else, or let's say you're really talented and you're doing your business a little better than everybody else, 
that's not enough. Like people, like you don't build a big business that way. And if your business is human powered, like you have to hire lots more people to make it work, usually that's really hard to scale, hard to grow, especially if those humans require talent. They have to be talented like you. You know, if they could just be, you know, kind of workers, but they don't have to have any special qualifications, like a fast food chain, much easier to scale. Right. But if they have to have, be knowledge workers and innovators, specialists, yeah. specialists they're Sneeze. harder to find and they're harder to keep, you know, and, and more expensive, this, let's be right. honest. <laughs> and, expensive, and that slows the growth again. Yeah. So they, it doesn't grow exponentially. So what you need to think of is like software is the big thing, right? Because software is the easiest thing for most entrepreneurs to do on a lower budget starting out with and then yeah. scale up. Yeah. So getting a technologist, getting a great uh, user interface and customer experience designer, getting somebody who understands marketing, all of you getting together, forming a company, but not just with average people. Like if you're going to really beat out the competition, you have to have an exceptional team because it's so competitive. Like it is, and you can't just do things even better than everybody else. You literally have to make what we call a breakthrough. You have to make, you have to, there are only two ways for a business to break out like and become one of these unicorns, only two. So either you have to do something significantly better than all your competition. And by significantly, I mean an order of magnitude, two right. times, three times, five times better, because people will not switch what they're using just to come to you because you made it a little better. You right. added a new feature. That was a cool feature. Think, I'll give you a very concrete example, Gmail. You're using Gmail. Some other startup comes out. They have three new features that are really cool. Are you going to switch Gmail? Probably not. Like no, you're, too, well, entrenched, too entrenched, too no, entrenched. It, it has no, either yeah. the, the new offering has to yeah. be exponentially better. Like it right. just blows Gmail away. So you're like, oh my God, I'm going to try this thing. Like I'll, mm -hmm. I'll give up on what mm -hmm. I know. Or it has to offer a value, a core value that is different than Gmail. It has yeah. to do something differently. And in that case, you might use it in addition to Gmail. So if you don't do something different that people really, really, really need or really, really better, forget it. Like you're not even in the game. If yeah. you if, <laughs> uh, well, so, I mean, you're asking people to move out of their comfort zone, right? And so if you've got things that are too similar in space, they're not going to change for something that they know, right? It's the devil, you know, kind of situation. I mean, there's a ton of corporate people who stay in the same shitty job because it's the devil that they know. Um, there needs to be, like you said, a core value that's not being honored by that, you know, positioning, but it also has to do with money sometimes as well as, you know, if we're looking at software, not only is it the uh, components that you're offering, but there can be a price difference, you know, I mean, in our world, we look at these CRMs and things like that. So, you know, are there these features, are they combining and bundling, which we all know is a great marketing strategy. Um, but then there's also something to be said about stripping it down to its core functionality and saying, hey, I just own this one aspect really well. And I am the best in class when it comes to doing this one thing, instead of trying to do 20 things at a mediocre level. You hit the nail on the head. So most, you know, when you start a, a startup, you're small. You usually don't, unless you're rich, you know, or you're famous and you can raise a lot of money, you usually don't have a lot of capital. Right. So most startups succeed by focusing just on one thing. What's one thing? And that can't be just anything. It has to be a major pain point, <laughs> major pain point, something yeah. that's driving your customers crazy. Like yep. they're like, I'll do anything to get this. Like mm -hmm. I'll, I'll pay money. I'll do whatever it takes. Sign me up. If you They'll can pay a premium, thing. right. For something yes. brand new, you're talking about early adopters who are willing to pay the high price point to solve this problem because it's that much of a pain in the butt. 
Exactly. So if you can do that one thing, you know, think about all the apps you download, all the software you use. Usually you download them for one reason. Like they did one thing really one well. Thing. And then you might yep. find out, oh, they do all these other things too. Great. And that keeps you in their ecosystem, keeps you, right. you engaged in their software. But it wasn't the initial reason you went and got it. Right. So if you can identify, and I call, I say entrepreneurs, like your job after you have the team is not to just build a product that's in your head. Like we all think of ideas and, you know, most of them don't pan out. They're just ideas. Your job is to actually hunt for demand. It's to mm. go into the world and say, is there this pent up demand that's not being met by anybody else that if I can go and just offer this, boom, that will propel my company. And that's what, that's what happens. Like right. entrepreneurs figure that out. And then building it is usually the easy part. Like yeah. finding that, uh, enough demand to drive a startup from a few person, you know, a few people into a billion dollar company. That is the tricky part. Well, I mean, and there's a second layer too, right? Which is I've, and I've heard people say this all the time. I had that idea 10 years ago and you look at them and you're like, yeah, but you didn't do anything with it, right? This, this, there's action component to it, this implementation and the doing this that I think a lot of people lack in terms of really seeing something through to success. How much do you think that plays a, a role in terms of, you know, kind of, I know there's the first to market, right? But we saw that with the beta and the, the VCR kind of strategy. Beta was first to market, it was a better product and it didn't win based off of their ability to position themselves in an authoritative way. So how much of the doing versus positioning versus marketing, like what's the right mix here that people really need to be hitting on? So in the early stages of a company, the most important thing is to, well, to dive in first, like do it. Like you can think of all the ideas you Cannonball, want. like don't you, try to wade into it. You just got to jump. You just got to jump, <laughs> but you got to jump intelligently. So you, first of all, you got to know yourself. Doing a startup is, is stressful and it's, uh, there's full. I, I laugh because I was on the inside of a startup. I was the fifth person and we went okay, to you know. We did the VC funding. We did all that stuff. So like, I'm laughing because it's trauma, but yes, keep going. <laughs> If you are the type of person who likes routine, likes to keep everything under control, it can get really stressful because yeah. things are, there's always something out of control. Always just something. don't enter, just keep going your path. Do not divert. Don't go onto this freeway. It's not, yeah, do, don't be a startup. It's not for you. You might be able to join a startup after it's already going and things right. are kind of solidified. That's a better time if you want right. to do that. Um, but most people, you, you have to be, have a high tolerance for stress. You have to be flexible you have to have the resources to last mm. at least a year. Honestly, you're not going to make a breakthrough within the first year. Like it's going to be tough and it takes a lot of trial and error. Things won't go your way. Everything you think of will take longer than you expect. So be prepared for all these things. I just, I, especially in the technological world, just because engineers love to overpromise and they underdeliver. God bless them. They just, it, they can't help themselves. They just really, they're looking enthusiastic. at them and yeah. like, are you sure? Oh yeah, there's no way there's, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was like, all oh, the things that go, don't anticipate to go wrong that go wrong. I mean, oh, like just and, the nights of testing and code correction. <laughs> yeah, it can be, a, it, really, it can be yeah. that. And you can hire the wrong people and then they walk away. Or they leave, like yeah, just, leave. just. You know, the loyalty isn't necessarily there. Like, that's the thing I think, you know, and I want to talk a little bit about this is 
you know, the CEO mindset, especially when it comes to whether you're building a tech firm and, and doing going down this VC path, or you have your own business or you're growing a team, this, this concept of ownership, right? For me, it's the CEO just as committed because it's their business. Of course they are. And this expectation that employees have that same level of commitment, I feel is one of the biggest shots in the foot that these CEOs really just don't recognize and don't understand in terms of their role and responsibility in terms of motivation and leadership. Absolutely. So we all assume because, you know, we care so much, everybody else should care so much. Right. And there's this myth out there that, you know, if anybody who joins a startup is going to care as much as you do, like the owner of the company, it's just not the case. Yeah. Like people are people. We care about what we, what really matters to us. And for a lot of them, it's a job. They're taking a job and it doesn't matter if it's a startup or a corporation, it's a job to them, but you can motivate people, Yes. but you don't motivate people by getting upset at them because they're not working long enough by getting mad at them because they don't seem to care enough uh, or go that extra mile. That won't, that'll, that might get them motivated for a little while. And then they go back to being themselves Mm -hmm. and they all, and there's also tension. What really motivates people is when you're on the job. And you can actually, they can't own the company because you own the company. You could give them shares, but still they're not the mate primary. Usually that's about as worthwhile as whatever you go to the bathroom with. I mean, I'm just saying at the beginning, we want to promise Maseratis and stuff like that. And that didn't actually come through. So (laughs) Ah, yeah, those stock options, you know, they're 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 Uh, well, most of the time they're B level and they're not even A. So let's be real. They're kind of (laughs) like, you can have 30,000 stock options that are not worth very much. Let me tell you, if you want motivated employees, employees, a few things you can do. Number one, it starts with hiring. Like, honestly, if you hire people who are doers, like who love to just get stuff done, Mm -hmm. who, who drive, who drive themselves, self, Mm -hmm. self self-driven people. These are people who you honestly don't have to do a lot to motivate. In fact, all you have to do is give them the freedom to do their job. And they usually do it pretty well. Right. Um, so if you give them that freedom and you don't micromanage them and try to, <laughs> to them. Them, yeah, <laughs> yeah, then they will, they will perform. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, if you don't hire those people trying to turn a person who isn't a doer into a doer, yes. uh, who's not self-motivated, not driven into somebody who is, is almost impossible. Honestly, well, you shouldn't be shocked why they, they come, you hired them from a nine to five. Yes. You shouldn't be shocked if they're not working beyond that five and they're not coming in before nine. It's just this, this, I mean, I guess it's the immature CEO who really doesn't understand how to functionally lead a team and who's just looking to kind of clone themselves. And that's just not the reality. It's not realistic. It's really not realistic. The other thing you could do, and I tell people there are different types of employees for routine jobs, just hire somebody and let them do their nine to five. Like, and if they do their job, you know, well, that's good enough. They don't have to be a superstar. Now you may want some superstars on your team. These Mm -hmm. can be people that you bring in as co-founders, right? That's a great way because then it's Mm -hmm. their company too. Mm -hmm. Or they can be early employees. Like I'm sure Kat was like (laughs) super, super dynamic people. But um, in those cases, often you will have to pay more, more than the market rate. Now, this is really uh, important because I know, you know, in the startups I've been in, the difference between a good employee who kind of does their job, gets mm-hmm. everything does and goes home and a great employee is not linear. Like the great employees produce exponentially more than the good ones. Mm-hmm. Like a great engineer 
literally a good engineer might take months and months to figure it out. And a great engineer will figure it out in a day or two. Like right. it's that different. So you may think, oh, the great engineer is only worth 30% more. But honestly, the and great time. engineers are worth double. Or, yeah. And even if you pay them double, they're still worth more. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my friend has a startup. He gave a perfect example. This engineer came to him and the engineer was like, he was, seemed decent on the interview, but he said he, he, he would only charge $7 an hour, like $7 an hour. And my friend was like, that's great bargain, you know, seven bucks an hour. And he goes, look, I'll pay you 15 because nobody can live off seven. So I'm paying you 15. Literally that engineer, he gave the person a problem. Four months later, hadn't solved it. The guy was going crazy. Hadn't figured out, launched, everything was, you know, backed up. He went and he decided to go the opposite extreme. He went and found the best engineer he could. The engineer cost 150 an hour, 10X, mm-hmm. 10X. Mm-hmm. Gave the engineer the same job. Four hours later, it was done. Yeah. Done. Four hours instead of four months. Was yeah. it worth the extra money? Yes. So if you want these amazing performers, don't be cheap. Like you're, gonna, you're probably going to have to pay for it. That's the other thing. So it's all in hiring. You really have to vet these people carefully. You really have to know who you're hiring for what positions. If it's a key, yeah. if it's what I call a transformative position, a position that will transform your company, like either make or break it, like the lead engineer, right? That's mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. The lead marketing person, you know, that's one. You know, these critical people, whether you're hiring them as a contractor mm-hmm. or my cat, right? Or you're hiring them as a full-time, it doesn't matter. Don't just go for the cheapest option. It will end up biting you. Well, I mean, you get what you pay for. I mean, yeah. yes, there are plenty of people that are that they don't understand the actual value, but also people are sometimes willing to work for a little bit less. Um, but it's the challenge and the environment that they're looking to that they thrive yes. in, right? So yes. having then you got to keep them, <laughs> right? Exactly. Once you um, hire them, you got to figure out how to keep them. And, I have and a rule it has for that. A, yeah, well, and and this is where putting that little bit of strategic effort, like I'm all about creating, strate- you know, putting yeah. strategic effort into creating ease. So where do we put some effort in in order to create the freedom of time and effort and all this other stuff later on because we're not trying to cut corners earlier on? And this is what, like, what you talked about in terms of hiring the right person. It's you know looking at what is the right personality, what is the what are the right characteristics, what are the values? Like this isn't just a I'm looking for someone who's 35 who's an engineer who graduated from you know, Princeton with this level of GPA, uh, you know, within these time years or whatever it is, it's really looking at that person's character. What is it that they value? What's involved in their life? You know, someone who has new children at home, you can't have this expectation of them being able to necessarily work nights and weekends and things like that. Not that I think that people should be forced to be doing that. Um, But, you know, really looking at that, which, you know, kind of leads me to a little bit of my next question, which is, what is the right characteristic for a successful CEO? Like what are those, what's that mix that makes someone actually be successful? Because there's a lot of smart people out there and they're not successful. And I see a lot of dumb people who are a hell of a lot more successful than the smart ones. So what's that formula in your opinion? It's true. Sometimes you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be a genius to do well at business. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people, you know, they're average intelligence, but they just nail it. They figure out something that works and they hammer at it. You know, they yeah. figure it out and they go all in on it. And, and they do a lot better than somebody who's like, you know, might have a PhD in, in biology, but they just don't get it. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that really defines a great leader are a couple things. Number one, you have to 
first of all, you have to know how to pick and motivate people like that. Uh, this, everybody else can do different things, but especially of uh, the leader of a company, you set the formula. You, you basically lay the foundation you for this the building. Standard. Yeah. yeah. And the people you hire initially, they're going to hire other people and other people. And if you can't attract those A plus players and keep them, then you're not going to, you're not going to build a great organization. Mm. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Number two, uh, I, you know, especially if you're in the innovative space, like the tech space, not a traditional business, but something that's like always uh, changing and, 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 and improving on what's there, you need to be curious. Like you need to question things. You need to yeah. go into the world and say, like, couldn't this be done better? What if we did it this way? What are the competitors doing? You're always asking questions, always going deep on these things, mm-hmm. because only by getting more information, understanding more and seeing the opportunities as they come up and taking advantage of them, can you actually build this great business and keep it great? Right. Number three, per, just darn persistence. You know, can you stick with it? Mindset, uh, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Mind, can, can you, <laughs> do you, do you, you know, do you get knocked down and do you just cry about it or do you just get up and say, that's a challenge. I'm going to, I'm going to try again. I'm going to smack my head against the wall again and again and again until I break through. Like Mm. those people who do that, you know, they end up succeeding. So it's this combination of things that are really important. Of course, there are other characteristics too, but some of them can vary. Like you could be really detailing or detail oriented and be successful. You can be really just a big picture person and mm-hmm. be a successful CEO. Mm-hmm. They're both types. Yeah. You can, um, what, uh, can, what is another thing that I think uh, CEOs have to, a uh, trait that they have to have is that CEOs always have to be pushing. Like Mm -hmm. if you really want to build a world-class organization, you cannot be satisfied with where it is now. Now, this is important because first of all, um, if you got to grow your business, you've got to push. You got to keep pushing the boundaries of what your business does. Number two, if you just stay in your lane, um, somebody else is going to be innovating. They're going, your competitors are going to be thinking of new things at a certain point. They're going to displace you. Like they're yeah. going to come in with something so much better, you know, that you just didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. So the, that type of person that's pushing yourself and really pushing everybody around you to excel again, really important. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, and there's a lot in terms of, uh, you know, what you're saying in terms of hiring, right, but setting the tone in terms of the culture, in terms of how, you know, as a leader of the business, you're setting the tone and the expectation for other people through your actions and how you show up. So words are great, but actions always speak louder. So if you're emailing people at two o'clock in the morning, and saying, hey, I don't expect you to be up at two o'clock in the morning responding to emails. Well, your actions are saying that if you're doing that, then other people need to mirror that. I'm just saying, you know, we've seen these kind of stories before in terms of having to do cultural shifts and things like that. And it all does start from the top down, um, but it wouldn't be as uh, much of an overhaul if you just started it from the very beginning, right? And build up on that positive culture. And and I have a rule for really good management. Like Mm. they're managers that are just drivers and they can get things just by driving people, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and setting really high expectations and, you know, people trying to live up to that. They have a lot of charisma. Other people um, get people to motivate themselves, which is a different, uh, and you can get great performance out of this. Mm-hmm. And I have one simple rule that I like to tell, and it's called ask, don't tell. And I want you, all your listeners to try this for a week with their employees. For an entire week, 
do not tell a single one of your employees what to do. Like, don't go and say, you should do this. No, 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 don't do that. Focus on this. Now, this is what I want you to do. And I want you to do this, this, and this after that. Don't do that. Like for an entire week, just every time you interact with them, instead of telling them, ask them, what do you think is the priority right now? What do you think you should be doing? How, how do you think you could do it better? And then listen, are you having any problems? Are there things you need or roadblocks ahead that I could help you with? If you ask people, suddenly it turns on their brain. Oh, my boss is asking me, how could I do this better? Oh, my boss is asking me, could, you know, is it possible to move up the deadline? Oh, my boss is asking me, you know, but it's me. And every time I say yes, or I come up with an answer, I'm committing to that, right? I am committing, not being told. And I'm being asked to think on my feet. I'm being asked to come up with ideas. I'm being asked to problem solve. And at the same time, as a boss, as a CEO, by asking these questions, you now are getting information, information you didn't have. Like you might have not known that, that two employees weren't communicating well. Well, by asking questions, you suddenly figure out, oh, there's a communication gap between them. We can think, I can get these guys, these people together. We can figure out how to solve this, how to bridge this, make it more efficient. Um, or the customer, we're not getting certain data from the customer. That's why they're not moving forward. Now that I asked why, you know, this, I'm getting that. Ask, don't tell, just try it out. I mean, I can't believe you're suggesting an environment that creates engagement and trust between employees <laughs> and departments and the CEO. I mean, that's just... The problem is, is that, you know, people get into this flight or fight, right? So this is very reactive state. And it's one of the things I'm actually certified in some of these assessments where we look at how are people reactive versus creative. So in order to move a business forward, you have to be in a creative state, right? This is, but most times people are operating from this reactive state where there's always putting out these fires and all this other stuff. And part of that has to do with, you know, CEOs and business owners and even founders really just kind of holding too much of a chokehold on their employees, trying to control too much of what's going on instead of doing the thing that they were intentionally trying to do, which is hiring people for your weaknesses so they can fill in the gaps so that you don't have to do everything. Yet this control component, you know, I mean, it's just amazing how self-sabotage kind of shows up and creeps up, which is why we have jobs. So <laughs> trying, to control, trying to control your employees is a losing battle. It's honestly, you're going to turn them off. You're not going to get better results. You're never in control anyway. So it's all an illusion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much of this is, is very parental, right? I yeah. mean, we've all got work wives and, and just kind of, we got cousins we don't really want to hang out with, but we're related and there's like brothers and sisters and things like that. But I mean, at any given time, when has trying to control someone ever worked out in your favor? <laughs> <laughs> never, right? Whether it's a spouse, a child that rebels, right? it never works out. Right, right. Exactly. So, you know, let's put some scenarios out there in terms of we've got some CEOs out there who are experiencing, you know, just friction. Let's just leave it at that and in their business. Where are the places that you think CEOs are not investing? So we know growing up as being founders and business owners and going up through, we know that investing in ourselves is important. We know that investing in infrastructure and in the right people is important. But where are you seeing people not invest where they really should be in their business that could really create potential, you know, huge return on investment that don't seem really obvious right at face value? Mm, this is a good question. So a lot of people will not invest in non-tangible things. Like they want something that 
they don't mind investing in hardware or software. Like it's real, you know, give me another server. We got to go yeah. faster. <laughs> yeah. They don't mind They, they don't mind investing um, in hiring people, but a lot of them don't invest in uh, getting their employees kind of trained mm. to perform better, like yeah. on the job, because yeah. especially small businesses, large businesses, you know, big corporations. They'll they, have budgets set aside. You can probably, do, you know, personal development, things like that. Very yeah. few small or even medium-sized businesses, yeah. but especially the small ones, yeah. really invest anything in, the, in their employees, no. which is a shame yeah. because and investing doesn't take a lot of money. That's what they don't understand. Like you don't have to spend a huge amount of money to invest in them. Investing could simply be like, look, we're going to, um, we're all going to read this book this week and I'm buying it for everybody, right? Cost of a book, you know, and we're going to read it and we're going to discuss it next week, yeah, you know, yeah. because I think this book will be really valuable to all of us in our mm -hmm. business. It mm -hmm. could be a book about communication. It could be a book about innovation. It could be a book about, you know, you know, work processes, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Right. Getting people into their business. Like, why don't you invite um, people to come in and give talks in your business, like run different programs Maybe you do it you, if you can't afford to hire them in as a consultant. You know, there are a lot of consultants out there where if you organize an event that's more than just your employees, but like you promote it to all your partners and everything where they get a big audience, they'll come in and do it for free because they are selling their own services. But at the same time, they will be educating and engaging your employees. So there are ways to do this on a budget. Also going to your employees and say, are there areas where you want to improve? How can I help? Can you, instead of you know, figuring it out yourself because you're busy, where do you, you know, I, you know, I really want to help you grow. How can I help you grow? Again, just ask them, how can I help you grow? Oh, well, I wanted to take this online course for this because I think it would really help my job. Okay, we'll do it. You know, yeah. have them come to you, have them do the research. It's them, you're improving them. And you'll find that, you know, they'll be so grateful. It'll actually they'll be motivated, but like this boss really cares about me. You know, this boss. Well, you're me. reinforcing loyalty, right? So this, I mean, especially if you're looking at small businesses and medium-sized businesses, like you said, a lot of them aren't doing this. And so if you can promote that growth, I mean, it's so much easier to promote from within, especially when it comes to, you know, industry knowledge and, and just within the company knowledge in terms of all that. And we know the cost of, you know, transitions and, tr and churn and all that stuff is exponentially more than what that person's salary is going to be, especially when it comes to onboarding. And I really appreciate you kind of sharing that, that thought, because I think that this is somewhere that a lot of CEOs, they're not thinking. I mean, there's just this short sightedness in terms of what growth can really look like and not really looking at what are the real assets they are beyond the physical ones that I have, even just the employee in terms of human form, but their knowledge. The other thing I'd look and add at is, you know, how are people actually capturing that knowledge? Because I think those processes and procedures are places that people really just they just don't understand the value of what they really have in terms of institutional knowledge in those employees' heads that just conceptually they don't get until that person's gone. Yeah, and people, uh, CEOs are often short-sighted. They don't understand how much turnover really costs them. Oh my God. It's not just, it's, it's, it's a huge cost to your business. It's a big yeah. setback, especially the smaller the business is. Yeah. One, you know, if you it's have why headhunters can charge 30% of that person's salary because and, it's and, a time and effort to find that person. Right. And, but you, it's also a big disruption. Yeah. So if you're a 10 person company and one person leaves that is critical to that business, that's like 10% of your workforce just left. You, yeah. know, you could imagine if 10% of Microsoft's workforce left in one day, it would be catastrophic. But and for your small business, though, it could be catastrophic to have just one person leave because that's 10%. 
how do you keep that person there? And we know that most people don't, it's not the money. Like they need to feel that, first of all, that they're, they're, they're appreciated on the yeah. job, that this job, especially jo- the current wave of people that are entering the workforce or are currently in the workforce as baby boomers are exiting. Right. And we have yes. more of the millennial, zillennial and yeah, Gen they really a. feel entitled. <laughs> <laughs> they really feel they have high expectations. But <laughs> I think that's, you know, another area in terms of, you know, the CEOs, they, they might invest in terms of their mindset, in terms of, you know, their personal growth and things like that. But I don't, you know, necessarily always see people really understanding you know, the dynamics of teams effectively, right? So they look to their VPs and they look to their hierarchy for them to function, but there's, you know, the buck stops with you. And there's, uh, there's, there, there is this lack of ownership in terms of, you know, call it, you know, narcissism sometimes in terms of like, Hey, this is not my problem. All starts with you. (laughs) Um, You know, what would be your advice with people who are currently, you know, experiencing maybe difficulties in their business. They're not sure what to do next. They're, they're not hitting the numbers like they want to, you know, the consistency and the predictability either was there and isn't right now, especially with everything that's been going on in terms of the political and the, the, the health environment across the globe. What would be your advice right now to CEOs who are looking to scale and looking to expand their current foothold in the marketplace? Okay, I have advice. And I write about this in my book, Surviving a Startup, because, you know, most startups have these problems. And if you're going to survive, you need to figure them out. Right. So my, my first answer is if things aren't going well for you, your business, like you're struggling, we can do, you can do all the things we talked about with employees, but at the end of the day, it might not be them, right? It might be the right. business itself. When your business hits a wall, I always say the answers lie in one place. They lie, what you have to do, that one place is the customer. You have to go and re-engage your customer. The reason you might not you might not be getting as many clients or customers into your business, the reason your revenue may be dipping, well, the world is a competitive place. People's needs change over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe uh, your old strategy isn't working anymore, but the answers are in your customer. So if you want to innovate on your business, you want to increase your revenue, you want to figure out new ways of adding value, which is really your job, right? Your job is to bring value to your customer. You need to continually engage that customer. And that means not just servicing what you already told them that you would do, but going to them again and asking them, where are you struggling right now? What processes do you want improved? What could we do better? What could we give you? How can we help you in ways that we aren't? And your customer, they may not tell you like exactly what, but you can infer from like the problem. They might say, well, I have this headache. We can't really figure this out. We're not. Then that might start to give you ideas. Ah, we could actually Mm -hmm. step in there and do that for them. Are there a lot of other of our customers who have this issue? You go to your other customers. Like, Mm -hmm. do you also have this? Oh yeah, that's like a driving match nut. All of a sudden there's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to add more value. And ultimately, every time you add value, you can command more revenue because you are giving them more. Plus, you are locking them into you as opposed to them potentially leaving to somebody else because the more value you're bringing them, they just don't want to leave. We all know that. Like, yes. So it's that simple. You yeah. know, I can't tell you like specifically in every business where to innovate, but the answers are there. Like you just have to go out and get them and take the time to really uh, ask the right questions and and really pay attention to what they're saying. Like a lot of customers won't tell you the solution they want because mm-hmm. they don't know, but they will tell you the outcome they want. Mm. They'll tell you like, we, you know, we are having, we re- I really want to be able to, 
to communicate with our partners in a, in a more fluid way. Like mm. that's what they want. Or mm -hmm. we really need to boost our revenue. Like mm -hmm. our mm -hmm. revenue is sagging. So that's why we're giving you less business because our revenue is <laughs> right. oh, Okay, well, let's start to figure out now, this is the outcome you want. How can we get you there? What can right. we do to get you there? Right. I love this. And, and one of the reasons I love this is because so many times people, you know, this, this message comes in over and over again, people get to a certain place in their business and it doesn't matter where that place is. And they think they're beyond the basics, right? They think they're beyond doing market research. They think they're beyond connecting to your clients. They think they're beyond having conversations with your team, right? Doing these check-ins, having quarterly reviews. And, and I was just talking about employee performance reviews and stuff like that, but looking intrinsically at your numbers and tracking them, KPIs, all the things that make a business run are never things that aren't important to focus on, right? So it's just, it, it, it never surprises me, but it always amuses me when people don't go back to the basics and understand and look at all right, let's look at the foundation again. Where's the crack? Because that's probably what's causing an issue higher up the level in terms on the, the 34th, fourth floor or something along those lines. Um, is there anything else that, you know, you talk about in, you know, surviving a startup that you think would be really important for people to kind of pay attention to? Maybe it's something that, you know, a lot of people, uh, they don't see it because it's just in their day to day that, that really would make a difference in people's businesses. So the other thing is to pay attention to is yourself, right? Mm -hmm. All of us, <laughs> like we have so much going on. It's really hard to manage. And if they have found, they've done a number of studies and it, the CEOs who work the most hours aren't necessarily the most successful. There yep. is not a direct correlation. Yeah. So there are CEOs who are going home at night spending time with their families, CEOs who are taking vacation, God forbid, a vacation, you know? Why there's, that's so human of them, oh. Yes, but that are outperforming CEOs that are working like workaholics all the time. I, I often tell entrepreneurs, it's not how hard you work, it's how smart you work. Mm -hmm. And by this, I mean, you can work as hard as you want, like endless hours, slave drive your employees, do like everything, cut costs. But if you're going the wrong direction, mm -hmm. you're not getting there. Like you, you aren't getting there. You take time. I want your employees to take time and, and sit back. Like one of the billionaires I, I know, he, he said, you don't spend enough time sitting by the pool. Mm. <laughs> like, and this guy's a billionaire. When right? you detach, you get your best ideas. I mean, right. you know, <laughs> like so, you, someone asked me that the other day is how, how do you connect more? I said, you got to disconnect in order to connect. Yes. You have to disconnect. So, you know, you need to take breaks in your day throughout the day to just like clear your mind. What are my priorities now? Let me rethink. Am I really focused on the priorities or did I get on a tangent? Mm -hmm. Did I get a caught up in reacting to all the things mm -hmm. that are coming in my inbox and, you know, coming on my phone and you need to um, step back, get perspective, this also, and take care of yourself and your body. Because if you are kind of frazzled in a wreck, you're not going to be a great manager anyway. Like you aren't going to communicate well to your employees. There are going to be a lot of mess ups. They aren't going to really be able to relate to you because you're all, you know, you're stressed out and, and there they and, go again, <laughs> and potentially not a happy, not a good boss. Mm -hmm. So these, these are, seem like small things and they seem like uh, things you should know that we all know, but that we often don't do. We simply right. don't do them. The basics. Yes.
yes. just being human. Exactly. I love that. Um, Steve, you shared some amazing things today with us. I know that there's so much more in terms of the depths of your knowledge and your advice and the direction that you can give people. How can people learn more about what you do and, you know, any additional resources that you'd love to share? Sure. If you want to reach me, super simple, founderspace.com. Just come to Founderspace. We have you know, tons of material there, an online startup program, online innovation program, my books, lots of free material for you. But I want to give you something really special for your audience. When you come to Founderspace, uh, we have a free gift for you. It's called the 10 Commandments of Raising Venture Capital. So mm. even if you aren't raising money, it's a, it's a, it, it's a video, right? It'll yeah. take you through all te- 10 steps. It's of me, like I'm going through all the basics. Um, so just go to founderspace slash 10, T-E-N, and you can get there. Perfect. Also, if you want to reach out to me personally, I'm on all the social networks like LinkedIn, just search for Founderspace. Perfect. Yes. And I will say that Steve is absolutely extremely responsive and very engaging when it comes to uh, not only being generous with his time, but in terms of his advice that actually is worth its salt. Um, anything else that you and and the, those links will definitely be in the show, the, the show notes for you guys. Um, anything else that you would love to you know leave our listeners with? So I just want to leave them with um, one piece of advice, and that is really uh, try to enjoy your job. Like do what you can to enjoy it because, you know, at the end of the day, all those problems you have, all those things you think are just like so important a year from now, you won't remember 98% of them, like all the problems, you you know? So when you ever, you have one of those problems that you're just like, oh my God. And you're starting to freak out. Will I even remember this a year from now? The answer is probably not. Will you care about it a year from now? Absolutely not. Exactly. Perfect. Thank you so much for making the time um, to spend with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kat.